preach the gospel. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you. We have lots of needs today. And uh, we thank you that your word is reliable. And we pray that you would work in our hearts by your spirit to better understand it. And we ask that you would change us by it. Um, you know the burdens that we bear today, Lord, the confusion that we feel. And so we ask you to be merciful to us and kind. Help us, Lord, in our weaknesses. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jackie is my dental hygienist. I almost said mental hygienist. <laughs> she is my dental hygienist. And uh, so when I go to see her, as I did this week, um, she had lots of opportunity to talk. I can't talk very much. And uh, I learned from looking around her office that she is a Phillies fan. Uh, she goes to spring training. Uh, she has a packet of tickets so that they can go to games throughout the summer. She loves the Phillies, and this is a long-standing tradition in her family. Her father before her and her grandfather before him they were also Phillies fanatics, but she is a frustrated Phillies fan these days. And you say, well, why? Because they are not winning the way she wants them to. They won yesterday, 5-3, to three, beat the Mets, right? They're one game out in the National League East. Just one game. So it seems like they're doing pretty well. But not good enough for Jackie. And she stands as something of a model for us when we think not about the Phillies so much, but rather our own spiritual lives. We want to be people who are in a position to say, yeah, we're winning. We're making progress in our relationship to the Lord individually and collectively. The gospel is going forth around the world. And it raises another question. Given our troubled world, can God's kingdom win? This morning, we're going to look at one of the additional ways in which the kingdom of God survives at the time of David. And it's from the passage that we just read, 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 to 26, if you have a Bible and can turn to it. And let me just say, granted, this is a blood and guts scene. There's no getting around it. It is a very difficult passage when you think about all the violence that's there. We're going to look at it this way. There are certainly problems, big problems. Uh, what we're going to look at really is the way in which our sins have the potential to keep on giving again and again and again, even though when we think they've been put to the side. With sin, it's often not once and done. It's often once and again and again and more implications and more ramifications, more results of sin. So we're going to take a look at how sin just keeps on giving here. So there are lots of problems. We'll see how those problems are solved and then hope to apply this in a way that's going to be meaningful for you in this next week. 
we're going to look first of all at verses 1 and 2 where there is rebellion once again. And then verse 3, which is a sad, sad commentary on life in David's kingdom. Then uh, futile search, and finally, uh, an unstable kingdom at best. But before we look at any of that, um, let's step back from it and try to get the big picture in front of ourselves. This section, the uh, chapter 20, is the end of a block of stories about David that really started back in chapter 15. And the thing that ties chapter 15 with chapter 20 is um, rebellion. Back in chapter 15, Absalom rebels. Uh, he wants to overthrow his father and his government. And now here in chapter 20, we have not Absalom, who is now dead and gone, but rather a man named Sheba. So that's the, one of the ways in which this section is packaged. Uh, there's another one. If you just look at the verses we read, uh, verse 1 starts out with Sheba blowing his trumpet and saying, hey, we're out of here, Israelites. Ten tribes of Israel, we're history. We're not going to give any allegiance to David. And then if you come to the end, verse 22, we have the same kind of language used that brackets this section. Uh, Joab now, on the death of Sheba, blows his horn and returns to Israel, or returns to Jerusalem. And then one other uh, bracketing kind of mechanism that the narrator uses. If you go back to uh, chapter, eight, uh, chapter 8 and look at verses 15, to 18 there's kind of a summary statement about how David's kingdom is organized and we find a similar summary statement here in verses 22 through 26 about how David's new return to Jerusalem is organized so those are some of the bracketing uh, mechanisms that the author uses well let's look first of all at rebellion once again it's right there in verses 1 and 2 Sheba he's a worthless man we're told he leads what he hopes is an insurrection that will result in the ten northern tribes of Israel seceding from any control over David it's a serious problem and a sad problem and this chapter is mostly concerned with the secession issue and how it's resolved uh, you say what's the evidence okay look just at the number of times down through the chapter that Sheba son of Bichri is mentioned by my count there are eight of them and then another key to understanding this chapter is the number of times in which the word pursue is found. Uh, it's in verse 6, verse 7, verse 10, and verse 13. 
This is about Sheba mounting a rebellion against David and David dealing with that. But there's one other thing about Sheba and his rebellion. We can't really look at verses 1 and 2 without considering what we saw the last time in chapter 19, verses 41 to 43. Remember, back then, the tribes of Israel and the tribe of Judah get into a spat. As a matter of fact, it was more than a spat. They, they really are at one another's throats. It's fierce interaction. And where is David, the king, as these two groups of people are at one another's throats and he is on his way back to Jerusalem? Where is David? He is the nowhere man. He is nowhere to be found. He doesn't take the initiative to try to solve this problem. And we might just pause here. What we see in the life of ancient Israel is not all that different from what we see in the life of the church. There are plenty of people in the church, whether you talk about capital C or little c, little local c, there are plenty of people in churches that are at one another's throats. Oh, they probably wouldn't manifest it in public, but there are unresolved tensions. And we might say to people, don't you know that we pray the Lord's Prayer every week here? Forgive us our debts as we have already forgiven our debtors. And yet, rebellion goes on as it did in this setting in the lives of many people who claim to be followers of Jesus. Well, so there's rebellion again. That brings us to verse 3, which I think has got to be one of the saddest, saddest verses in the Bible. Before we look at it, let's just think about why it's here at this place. David now is returning to Jerusalem, and when he gets back to Jerusalem, here he has ten concubines that he has left to take care of the city in his absence as he's fleeing from Absalom. He gets back to the city, and now verse 3 is going to tell us what happens in his relationship with these ten women. But the question we want to ask is this. Why does the writer put this account here in verse 3? We've started talking about Sheba and how he's, going to, he's rebelling. And most of the chapter is about Sheba and how he is finally subdued. And it would be very easy for the writer simply to take this verse about David and his concubines and plunk it on verse 22 just before there's this statement about how David's kingdom is organized. He doesn't do that. Why doesn't he? 
it reminds us of earlier history here. It reminds us specifically of David's sin against Bathsheba, first of all, and then Uriah. These ten concubines are back in Jerusalem taking care of the palace after David has fled before Absalom. But the reason that ever happened is because God had said to David, here's what's going to transpire. You have privately sinned against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, and now I am going to bring this matter to public attention. Your companion is going to violate your concubines before the whole nation. And so David couldn't have come back home without having some thought about his past failures. And that casts this whole chapter then under the larger category of not just getting rid of Sheba and his rebellion, but the Lord being faithful to his word, even in judgment on David. So what happens? Well, David goes back home. Uh, there are these ten concubines. And let's just say parenthetically, not only does David have ten concubines, but by my count, he also has uh, eight wives. Uh, he goes home, and he decides that he has some responsibility for these women. And so he finds a way to provide for their needs but they're separated and they live as in widowhood for the rest of their lives. Imagine, just think about what it was like for, for those women. Some of them probably could hark back to their earlier days when they were young and attractive and had high hopes of a lovely life, and now what happens to them? They've become concubines, and now they live in widowhood until the end of their days. They're prisoners. But again, on the side, and it's not the point of this passage, I know from many years in pastoral ministry that there are people in the church who have suffered, whose lives, as one commentator has mentioned it, uh, whose lives have been turned gray because of the sins of others against them. There are people like that in the church, and I guess, my guess is there are people here today, some of you would say, yeah, somebody has sinned against me, and it has made my life very, very sad. I have had to live, as it were, in captivity, like these concubines. And I want to say to you, uh, Jesus came into the world to set the captives free. He promises that he is going to wipe away the tears of those who trust in him. And he will provide comfort for you in your brokenness.
with that kind of orientation, now let's look at sort of the central part of the passage. It's verses 4 to 22. And there's a, a futile search, and this really uh, shows us how uh, David pursues Sheba. First thing he does, verses 4 and 5. He says, Amasa, I want you now to rally the troops in Judah. Who is Amasa? We may forget that, so let's just remind ourselves. These names get a little confusing. Amasa was Absalom's key military leader. He was loyal to Absalom when Absalom was rebelling against David, his father. And in David's uh, really uh, unwise attempt to unite the nation, he makes a promise to Amasa, and he says, this is what I'm going to do, Amasa. I'm going to replace Joab, who has been my military leader. I'm going to replace him with you because you're my flesh and blood. So that's what he does. And he says to Amasa, now I want you to go out and rally the troops and then report back to me, but Amasa doesn't do it quickly enough. And so David turns to Abishai, who is Joab's brother. Joab was David's military leader, who we might remind ourselves was instrumental in putting David's son Absalom to death. He says to Abishai, look, we, we've got to act. We've got to do something about Sheba. We have to pursue him. So you get the troops, take my troops, and go after him. And he does. And along with Abishai and the other troops is Joab, David's old leader who's been displaced now twice. In about verse 8 and following, the uh, narrator really slows down the uh, speed of the tape, if you will. And he says, he, he lets us see just how blood and guts this really is. Uh, he slows it down and we see the details, the texture of what's happening. And what is happening is Joab and Amasa meet at the stone of Gibeon. And Joab has a dagger in hand. Uh, he takes Amasa by the beard, which was a gesture of friendship. And he says, how are you, Amasa? And Amasa doesn't realize that in his left hand, he has his dagger, and he impales him and kills him on the spot. Now those that are around and see this gory detail, they don't know what to do. Here's a man who's bleeding to death on the ground in front of them, and they just sort of pause. And so one of David's, uh, one of uh, Joab's men takes him, drags his body out of the road, covers it with a cloth, and then he says, who's ever for David and who's ever for Joab, come on, let's get going. And so they step around the blood-stained road and they're on their way after Sheba. 
and they eventually do get to Sheba. He's taken refuge in a town called Abel Ma, Beth Ma'akah. And as was the case back in those days, um, military leaders would set up some way of getting over the wall into the city, and you can read it for yourself. They begin that process. And as it appears more and more likely that they're going to be successful and they're going to break into the city and they're going to be able to get Sheba, a woman calls over the wall to Joab. Says, I'd like to talk to you, Mr. Joab. Joab says, I'm listening. She says, listen, our village, our town is known as a place for wise people. And, and, and we are like the daughters of Israel. You're going to destroy us for the sake of what? And Joab says, well, Sheba has rebelled against, against David. And we want him. She says, don't worry. I am a wise woman. I will talk to the other people in the town here. We'll send his head over the wall. And it happens. And let's not miss the parallel thinking here. Uh, remember how Absalom died? Got his head stuck in a tree. And how does Sheba die? He gets his head removed. It's gory. 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 So let's make this observation at this point. All right. Sheba's been taken care of. The rebellion has been quelled, I think we could say. What can we say about Joab? On the surface, publicly, he is very loyal to David. He leads the troops against Absalom. But what goes on in Joab really where the rubber meets the road? He's publicly loyal and he is privately unsubmissive. Does that make sense? Publicly loyal, privately unsubmissive. And Jesus told us that the church is going to be composed of people like Joab. He says they're going to be wheat and tares. And so be careful and watch and encourage one another to keep on following Jesus. Or let me say it another way. This is a wise woman who brings an end to Sheba and the rebellion. And we could trace down through this history lots of places where there is apparent wisdom. But we want to say to ourselves, wisdom, apart from holiness, and by wisdom I mean skill, wisdom apart from holiness is lethal. It is lethal. And so Jesus reminds us, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. It's one thing to acknowledge God's sovereignty. It's quite another thing to submit to his will. And that's what the Lord wants in your life. Not some kind of formal acknowledgement of the Lord, but a glad bowing of your will to him. Well, that brings us to the last part of the chapter, verses 22 to 26. And the best we can say about this situation is there's an unstable kingdom now that's been established. Again, as I said earlier, as I said earlier, if you look at chapter 8, verses 15 to 18, and compare it with these last verses of the chapter, what you'll see are similarities between the way in which David's kingdom is organized. And we can at least say, okay, the king is safe now. And we kind of breathe a sigh of relief. But notice verse 24. What does that tell us? It says that somebody in David's orbit is responsible for forced labor. You say, how does that work? How's forced labor work when this is a covenantal arrangement where David is the shepherd of God's people and the prince of God's people? It certainly seems as if at this point now in, <clears throat> uh, in the progression of David's kingdom, there has been a significant covenant erosion. Yeah. What we see is um, we see some order, but it looks more like raw political strength. Uh, we might call it royal ruthlessness rather than trying to live out a covenant of love to which the Lord calls his people. It's going to be in Jerusalem, according to this model, it's going to be our way or the highway. So let's just pause now and try to go back. We've, we've touched on this a little bit, but I'd like you to think with me about how David fails in this whole scene. Well, Sheba's rebellion comes out of something. It comes in part out of David's unwillingness to try to be a peacemaker between Israel and Judah. He's the nowhere man, as I mentioned. He doesn't lead. And then when it comes to his treatment of the concubines, that can only remind us of his violation of the seventh commandment. Multiple times over. Eight wives plus who knows how many concubines. And then his folly in appointing Amasa to be his new leader when he already had Joab as a leader. And then Joab's murder. It seems as if there's no recovery except for the fact that God is the God of the covenant. 
He makes promises and he keeps his promises. And he had said to David, you will not lack for someone to sit on your throne. This is a mess that show us that that shows us that sins keep on giving. Your sin will take you places you never want to go if you let them rule your life. And thankfully, <laughs> this mess points us to a much better king, Jesus. Right? He stands in stark contrast to everything that we see in David and all his failures here. And that is a king who has been given a kingdom that is global. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, we read in, he in Revelation. And we are told in the book of Hebrews that we've been given a kingdom that will not be shaken. And so the question then before us is, how does this kingdom that we want to see win as followers of Jesus, how does this kingdom advance? Well, it advances not through blood and guts, as we've just seen here, but it advances through righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord takes His Spirit, He changes us, He saves us from our sins, He renews us, He gives us new life in Christ, and out of that new life in Christ, then He motivates us to walk in obedience, not because of our own resources, but because of the King of Kings who died for us and rose again. Well, you know Psalm 23, don't you? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, what's the next word? He leadeth me, or he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lord, who is the good shepherd, leads his people in paths of righteousness. It must be so because it's for his name's sake. And so no matter how bound you feel by your sin today, realize that the Lord is leading you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You are not so sinful that the grace of God and the love of God and the power of the cross of Christ cannot deliver you from that sin. And so we are told in Romans chapter 14 where we're reminded that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're told in that same chapter because of the work of Christ that he's doing in your life right now, therefore, pursue peace and pursue building up one another. Have you heard the story about William Borden? Well, let me tell you. He was born in 1887 uh, into a very wealthy family. These were millionaires. And um, when he graduated from high school at age 16, his parents gave him a graduation gift 
of a trip around the world. And it was during that trip around the world that he began to think to himself, hmm, there's so much need here. I would like to do something to help with suffering people. Came back home, enrolled at Yale University, and subsequently went on to study at Princeton. But while he was at Yale, he wrote this in one of his journals. Say no to self. Say yes to Christ every time. And then as a freshman at Yale, he decided that he would invite a couple other students to join him for prayer before breakfast in the morning. They did join him. And that group led to another group and another group. And by the time he was, had, had completed his uh, freshman year in college, there were 150 groups meeting for prayer on campus. And by the time he graduated as a senior from Yale University, there were 1,000 out of 1,300 Yale students that gathered every morning to pray and to read God's word. William Borden decided that he wanted to be a missionary uh, and serve in China. And so he headed to Egypt first where he began to study the Arabic language. He thought, if I'm going to minister to Muslims in China, I ought to at least know Arabic. And within a month, he died of spiral meningitis. He gave away his wealth. He was offered a very lucrative position in business when he graduated, but he said, no, I'm going to the mission field. He gave away his life in an attempt to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as uh, someone who is committed to the advance of the kingdom of God, someone who is committed to seeing the kingdom of God win in our world, he wrote this on the back flap of his Bible. No reserves, no regrets, no retreats. Isn't that a good way for you to begin a new week? Giving yourself to the Lord. No reserves, no regrets, no retreats. kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Lord, bless your word to us, we pray. Help us to be people who uh, love the king and love his kingdom and demonstrate that by the selfless giving of ourselves to your eternal purposes. Make us a blessing to one another and beyond this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.